Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Boy, do we have a good history-focused show for you this week. First up, Sarah Meister. On February 9th, the Museum of Modern Art in New York opens Dorothea Lang, Words and Pictures, the first significant solo presentation of Lang's work at MoMA since a 1966 survey. The exhibition, which is drawn from MoMA's collection, was curated by Meister with River Bullock and Madeline Weisberg. It will be on view through May 9th. It's accompanied by a book featuring contributions by Meister, Julie Alt, Sandy Phillips, Sally Mann, Wendy Redstar, and plenty more. Amazon offers it for $55. MoMA's Lang exhibition will specifically examine the way words, including Lang's own, which Lang often presented in extended captions, as well as in her own photographs, have guided our understanding of Lang's work. On the second segment, Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco curator Lauren Palmer joins me to discuss additions she and the Fine Arts Museums made to Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, 1963 to 1983. Before we get to this week's guests, a couple of quick notes. First, I know we've been a little slow getting images up the last two weeks. That should be all fixed. The images for this week's show are up on the show page at manpodcast.com. Secondly, we could always use more ratings and reviews at iTunes or wherever you download the program. Five-star ratings and reviews really help more people find the show. They help us keep on keeping on. Thanks a lot. Sarah Meister, after the break. Experience Barry X. Ball remaking sculpture at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through April 19th. The artist Barry X. Ball reinvents traditional sculptural formats and existing art historical landmarks using state-of-the-art 3D scanning technology, computer-aided modeling software, and CNC milling machines in combination with centuries-old craft techniques requiring thousands of hours of detailed handwork. Barry X. Ball Remaking Sculpture is the artist's first major U.S. museum survey. Learn more and plan a visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. A new exhibition at the Getty Center showcases more than 200 never-before-seen treasures from the museum's extensive photographs collection. Unseen, 35 Years of Collecting Photographs, spans the history of the medium from its earliest years to the present day and highlights visual associations between works from different times and places, encouraging visitors to make fresh discoveries. Learn more about this must-see exhibition at getty.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Cosmic Rhythm Vibrations, highlighting works from the collection that engage visual and musical rhythm. Rhythm may be expressed through repeated patterns of color, form, or movement, or, in other cases, implied sound and dance. Whether they embody a beat or a swing, these works carry a pulse that helps guide the viewer through time and space. As wide-ranging objects that reference the power of rhythm and music to transcend earthly concerns, Collectively, they become cosmic in their vast reach and otherworldly magnetism. The majority of the works come from the museum's contemporary collection, but also include other artistic genres, time periods, and modes of production, such as the traditional African and ancient American collections. The exhibition incorporates new acquisitions by Elizabeth Matheson, Dave Muller, Paolo Nazareth, and Gordon Parks, a pyramid of symbols by Satch Hoyt, a music and photography installation by Zyveria Simmons, Vibrating Landscapes by Charles Birchfield, Singing Birds by James Audubon, A G's Bend Quilt by Nettie Young, and much more. On view through March 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash cosmic. 
And we're back. Sarah Meister, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much, Tyler. I'm thrilled to be doing this. Before we get to some of the specifics in the show, what got you interested in Dorothea Lange's claim that all photographs can be fortified, her word fortified by words? Well, I was interested in it, first of all, because I don't think it's true. I don't believe that all photographs can be fortified by words, but also because I had been doing a project about Lang's migrant mother, and I was struck by the many ways in which the words that were associated with that photograph were often untrue or misleading, and yet the picture was so resilient. It seemed indifferent to all of the words that had been associated with it over its lifetime. If we back up, it might surprise listeners to learn that while Lang is one of the most famous American artists of the 20th century, and that while she's been the subject of full-length biographies in many media, TV documentary, book-length biography, all that, and that while she's made some of the best-known photographs of the century, she has not been the subject of many monographic examinations, especially by the institutions with the largest holdings of her work. What about dipping into Lang motivated you? Well, if I'm going to be totally honest, the museum publishes this series of books called One on One. And most of them previously had been about paintings in the museum's collection, because, of course, paintings are more naturally considered singular objects, the focuses of one on one studies. So but when we decided to think about what photographs would be interesting to look at in that context, we gave publications a list of our top selections. And of course, migrant mother was a, among them because Lang's migrant mother, almost interestingly in its multiplicity, because it is the most singularly widely exhibited, reproduced, shared photograph, probably in the history of the medium, it then has its own kind of one-on-one. -on -one. And so we, publications came to me and they said, Let's, and they came to our department, and they said, you know, we really think Lang's Migrant Mother would be a great one on one book for us to do next. And, you know, and initially I thought, oh gosh, there have been so many words written about this photograph and about Lang. How could there possibly be anything new to say? And I was just struck as we dug in how, in fact, there were many contradictions and complications and untold stories. And in fact, there was new research to do and new things to say. And that kind of got us going on a Lang kick. And the more we dug into it and finding that quote you mentioned about how all photographs can be fortified by words, the more it struck us not only that she was such a singularly important figure and so deserving of renewed attention today, but that one aspect of her career that really hadn't been considered was this relationship between words and pictures. So when when Lang is talking about words, you know, when she's textually talking about words, does she mean her words as in captions or the information she often attached to a picture? Does she mean words that an outside writer, such as her husband Paul Taylor, perhaps brought to a project? Or did she mean photographs that have words in them, such as from signs or billboards? I really think of it as encompassing all of those. And one of the things that we're doing in the exhibition is to all three of those things, to bring forward her voice. So to have we're having quotes that we're silk screening on the walls that are 
her words about photographs and even specifically migrant mother, that photograph is appearing kind of late in the exhibition chronologically because we're presenting it when her words, Lang's words, were first brought into dialogue with that picture. And that wasn't till 1960. Let me let me jump in real quick. The picture was made in March of 36. So 60 is a ways on. Exactly. But we are also really interested in the book that Lang and Paul Taylor did together, for instance, called An American Exodus in 1939. In that book, which was such a pioneering photo book, in part because it brought together not only photographs of the dispossessed, the displaced, the pictures that Lang had been making for the Farm Security Administration, but it put those into dialogue with the words of the people pictured. And that idea of how, and also other words, folk song lyrics, newspaper articles, advertisements, sociologists, commentary. So this idea even from 1939, of how important the relationship between words and pictures was for Lang with Taylor also underscored. And in fact, the end papers of An American Exodus are almost like a wallpaper of the various voices of the people pictured inside it. And we're using those end papers as enlarged at the entrance to the exhibition. I think it's going to look great. I'm going to come back to those end papers in a moment. But first, let's talk about American Exodus for a moment. You described the book American Exodus as the, quote, most thoughtful and complete expression of Lang's interest in words and pictures to the authentic voices of the individuals represented in her photographs. So before we get to the end papers, what was the book? And did Lang conceive of the pictures within it with the purpose of giving textual voice to, to visual? Lang was always committed, and I think this is a reflection of her relationship with Paul Taylor. She was committed to taking field notes when she was out on the road, capturing these voices. So those field notes are at the Library of Congress, they're at the Oakland Museum, and they are a wonderful expression of how from as early as 1935, she's listening while she's looking and she's recording those words while she's recording those images. And so I don't think that necessarily an American exodus was seen as the end goal when she was doing that work in 35, 36, 37. But certainly by 38, she and Paul Taylor were committed to the idea of what kind of a book would encapsulate that moment? And how could a combination of words and pictures bring forward something new, both for the genre of photography and to kind of forward the dialogue around the desperate situations that they found around them? We've both mentioned Paul Taylor. He was an economist and sociologist at the University of California, Berkeley. And Yes. they Lang and Taylor met in 1934 after Taylor saw her photographs on view at Willard Van Dyke's gallery in Berkeley, maybe Oakland, probably Berkeley. But they they met in 1934 and by early 1935 they were going out on the in the field on the road together doing work capturing the agriculture and economic conditions of farmers mainly in California. It wasn't until the, toward the end of 1935, that Lang and Taylor each 
divorced their respective spouses and married, in fact, in New Mexico. In December of 35. You mentioned the end papers of American Exodus. So before we get to a couple of American Exodus pictures, who, who wrote the end papers and who decided that those should be the end papers? They're pretty spectacular. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com. They, the end papers really are spectacular. And for me, the combination of Lang's quote about all photographs can be fortified by words and the those end papers themselves and what they represented, that was how I knew this show was going to happen and needed to happen. The end papers weren't written by anyone. In You might say instead that they were distilled from notes taken in the field from the voices of the people that Lang was photographing. So those are all direct quotes from the people that Lang photographed and that she and Taylor encountered. Lang and Taylor felt that it was really important that these be known as the direct voices, in part as a rebuttal to the way in which Margaret Bourke-White and Erskine Caldwell, in their previous book, You Have Seen Their Faces from 1937, in that book, they had imagined the voices of the people pictured in their photographs. And I think to Lang and to Taylor, the idea of making up what these people would have been saying was anathema. They really felt a deep commitment to honestly and accurately reflecting these voices. And it's those voices that are the end paper. So let's talk about uh, a couple specific pictures in American Exodus and how the book joins them with text. One is a picture of five farmers. The original picture had six farmers. Lang cropped one of them out of, of, of five farmers looking like white farmers. And what text Lang joined with that one? Yeah, this is a great example because this is, although it's sometimes called six <laughs> tenant farmers without farms, here she's cropped it to be five because the sixth farmer, and we'll be showing a print of the full image in the exhibition as well, the sixth farmer was a little smaller, looked a little less like the characteristic Texas farmer that she and Taylor were hoping to capture in this. And the quote from them that's across the spread from their image in American Exodus says, where are we going to go? How are we going to get there? What are we going to do? Who are we going to fight? If we fight, what are we going to whip? And the point being that this feeling of sort of helplessness and frustration of these strong men who, you know, could do anything, but there's simply no options available to them. And how you might sense that in the photograph, but it's certainly amplified by the words across the spread. And how does that image in that text talk with uh, Woman of the High Plains, Texas Panhandle, which is also an American exodus and which really is one of, I don't know, probably the 10 or 15 most famous pictures Lang ever made? That, unlike the five tenant farmers or six, where she, where Lang and Taylor give more contextual information about them, they call them all Native Americans, none able to vote because of the Texas poll tax, all on WPA. So she, she and Taylor give a sort of sense of the circumstance of those farmers. For the woman of the High Plains, she's only identified as Texas Panhandle, 1938, and with a single quote, if you die, you're dead, that's all. And it's such, you know, that, that restraint and allowing the picture and her words to convey the story 
you know, it's not only an extraordinary photograph, but it's one that in this context and with the light hand that Taylor and Lang have in combining it with words, it just magnifies your sense of identification and empathy with this woman whose life is obviously almost unimaginably difficult. Lang was a cropper. She was happy and eager to 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 crop her, her, her pictures. The print of Woman of the High Plains, Texas Panhandle, which is a June 38 picture in MoMA's collection. It's a 1965 print and is large, 30 by 24. Any thoughts on how and why Lang cropped the picture as she did? It's pretty different in the book than, it, than it's going to be in the galleries. For me, I think the cropping of the Woman of the High Plains that Lang is zeroing in on her, less of the land, less of the sky, really focusing in on her hand and her neck and thinking about in an American exodus in particular, how to have the most impact in the exhibition from 1966, which is the print that we'll be exhibiting at MoMA next month. In that print from 1966, She gives a little more space around the figure, but she also enlarges it to such an extent that her monumentality and her, the impact of the picture is reinforced through scale as opposed to through a slightly tighter crop. Is there a better, clearer example of a crop that, before we return to text, that might be a a, a good way of discussing how Lang, you know, kind of edited an image the way she, you know, was edited text. So Lang, you are absolutely right. Lang was not afraid of cropping. It was, you know, she did not ascribe to Cartier-Bresson's theory that the image had to be sort of seen and complete through the photographer's eye at the moment of exposure. So there are often examples where she made an image and then indicated cropping marks that tell different things. And there are also examples of where the work circulated in different contexts with different cropping. So one really interesting example of this is her photograph of a plantation overseer and his field hands from the Mississippi Delta that she made in June of 1936. And in the full negative from this image, you see Paul Taylor at the left edge engaging with the plantation owner and his field hands. And you understand sort of why the gazes, some of the figures are looking at Lang, some of them are looking at Taylor, but you really understand the dynamic of the interview of how Taylor and Lang are going about their work. Now, when that photograph was published in... In 12 Million Black Voices, a folk history of the Negro in the United States. So when that photograph was published in 12 Million Black Voices, a folk history of the Negro in the United States, which was Richard Wright's 1941 book, Taylor was intentionally cropped out of it, thinking that that was a distraction from the story that certainly that Richard Wright wanted to tell. But that is the most common cropping of it doesn't include Taylor at the far left. Curiously, this photograph was also published in Archibald McLeish's Land of the Free. And in that, it's cropped in even further. And it's just the plantation owner and one of his field hands, which was really isolating and elevating this plantation owner to a degree that Lang certainly objected to and was on record as saying she didn't like that cropping. 
So American Exodus, the book, is 1939. Lang stays interested in in text and words for, for a long time thereafter. In 1952, she made the picture that would be on the first on the cover of the first issue of Aperture magazine. Aperture, of course, was founded by a group of photo-interested types, including Minor White, Nancy Newhall, Barbara Morgan, Ansel Adams, and Lang herself. What is that picture that's on the, the cover of that first issue of Aperture, and what does it suggest about her interest and really her playfulness? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I, love, I love that photograph because, you know, the inaugural issue of a magazine dedicated to the issues of photography with, you know, with these signposts. So these signs are saying, you could go in this direction, you can go in this direction. But of course, Lang has photographed it from such an angle that any direction is withheld. You you don't know which direction you were meant to be going or from whence you came. Yeah, you can't see the words on the sign. Right. So the the signs are there, but they they quite deliberately withhold any words that give you a sense of direction. And I think it's a great use of that photograph in the magazine. And I think it's also notable that in 1952, that question of how words and pictures were relating to one another was certainly in the air. So in that inaugural issue of Aperture magazine, Nancy Newhall had written an article called The Caption, really trying to think through how words and pictures related. And Lang is wrote a letter to Steichen that year, also about words and pictures. A man named Wilson Hicks published a book called Words and Pictures, a 400-page book. So there was certainly something in and around 1952 where they were thinking actively about how words inflected our understanding of pictures. Is there within Lang's use of captions, especially, a, a particular dedication to factuality and truth, or is she more interested in a cross-picture narrative? Or both, maybe. It's a super interesting question because on some level, you could say she is more dedicated to truth than anyone. She she understood why it was important to take field notes and to record actual voices and to put those forward. At the same time, we have plenty of examples of things changing and appearing in different contexts. Even the quote, if you die, you're dead, that's all, was applied to a different photograph in a 1949 exhibition at MoMA. So, you know, it's, um, I would say she was deeply committed to it and also eh, willing to make some accommodations for dramatic effect. And we have, we have wonderful letters from Lang to John Tchaikovsky in 1965 when she she knows she's going to die. She's working on her 1966 retrospective with John Tchaikovsky, who was the director of the Department of Photography at MoMA. And she she's writing to John and she's working on the captions for this 1966 retrospective. And she says to John, I'm working on the captions. This is not a simple clerical matter, but a process for they should carry not only factual information, but also added clues to add attitudes, relationships, and meanings. They are connective tissue. And in explaining the function of the captions, as I am doing now, 
I believe we're extending our medium. And so she wasn't blindly beholden to the idea of truth. She understood that it was an active process and she she believed in the importance of her role in developing captions. And that's in part why we use the captions from the 1966 retrospective as authoritative, even if they may have been published with different captions at different times in different contexts. But knowing how much thought she put into that in 1965, those seem worthy of respecting and keeping with the photographs. One of the things the, the the show's checklist got me thinking about was whether or not we know or whether or not you have ideas on art historical sources for Lang's use of text, either in pictures or in captions, if you think that there were artists at whom she was looking and thinking about how text had been used in and around their work. It's a really interesting question because we know, you know, starting with Dada and starting with, and you know, continuing on through the Surrealists and Magritte, there, there are ample examples of modern artists who think about the disjunction and possibility of combinations of words and pictures. I'm not sure that Lang herself was thinking about those, even though I think from a contemporary perspective, it's important to acknowledge that those preceded what she was doing. I think by the same token, it's interesting to look at the legacy of artists who think about words and pictures and to imagine the ways in which Lang's attentiveness, even if her particular example wasn't what they were looking at, that attentiveness and that belief, that thoughtful commitment to putting forward combinations of words and pictures was an important gesture for an artist, I think that that really continues to bear fruit. And in part, it's signaled by the incredible artists who have accepted our invitation to participate in this show. And so the number of contemporary artists from Wendy Redstar to Sally Mann to Sam Contis to Julie Alt, who all not only think about Lang, but think about combinations of words and pictures in their work, I find that incredibly inspiring and a tribute really to what Lang did. I wonder if Lang was informed, thinks think she probably was, by the way photographs had been joined with words across the 19th century West, which is something that happened less and later in the 19th century East. And Lang was, was a thorough, thorough Westerner. As she photograph, as she made pictures, she would have known of how photographs had been joined to government survey documents or, 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 or geology reports, such as the Clarence King and Timothy O'Sullivan relationship. She may have known how Carlton Watkins's pictures were used by a series of geologists to argue over decades how Yosemite Valley had been formed, including how they really sniped at each other in ways that are almost unimaginable now. And in her photographs of Kern County, which is the county at the southern end of California's Central Valley, it is the, in terms of dollars, the uh, most productive agricultural land in America and has been for, for it's kind of flipped back and forth with Fresno and Tulare County, the two, neighbor, two neighboring counties for that title for, for years now. Lang would have known because it was contemporary within her lifetime. 
that Kern was entirely constructed by San Francisco capital, that it was a desert that had been made into farmland by wealthy San Franciscans, thanks to industrial-scale irrigation. And she would have, I think, probably known that what convinced farmers from around the country to buy land in a desert to use as farmland was uh, pictures with captions, typed captions glued on t- just below the, the pictures on board. And and I, I suspect she would have known that. One of my very favorite pictures in the show um, and one of my very favorite Langs is a picture that's been known by a lot of titles over the years, but it's it's a picture of air in a gas station, an air pump in a gas station. What is that picture and what does it tell us about Lang's marriage of history, fact, and kind of political eyebrow raising? Oh, it's so great. I agree. I love that photograph. It, it, we chose it to be the cover of the book. In fact, that's that's how much I love it. And this is in a section in the exhibition called Pictures of Words because she, for all of her awareness of the relationship between photographs and captions like you describe, I think that their actual integration was something that she delighted in. And it occurs again and again in her career. So this photograph where it's of a gas station during a strike of Hmong workers who wanted to unionize, the owner of this gas station painted a sign and put it up below a sign that said air and said, this is your country. Don't let the big men take it away from you. And absolutely her sympathies with her sympathies with the workers, with the increasing consolidation of the agricultural industries in California or in resistance to that, this was really important to her. These were issues that she and Paul Taylor, they were attentive to constantly and thinking. And so to have it distilled into this really just powerful cry for independence is, uh, I think uh, it's, I love it. So I agree. And and in Kern County, where all of the water used in agriculture came from the Kern River, which to this day is the only privately controlled river that comes out of the Sierra Nevada, that when somebody is writing that on a sign at a gas station about air, they're almost certainly also well aware of the area's relationship to water. (laughs) So Kern County was created top to bottom <laughs> by by San Francisco capital. Not only was the place irrigated by, by San Francisco capital, and did those San Francisco capitalists then convince the federal government to then invest in industrial irrigation all across the West. But the other key factor in making Kern happen as an agricultural site was when the Southern Pacific comes through in the 1880s and 1890s, and suddenly fresh fruit particularly can get to market as fresh fruit without having to be made into brandy or some other processed product. And there is a picture of Langs that nods at the Southern Pacific and kind of winks at this history. And it's a, it's a great example of one of her text pictures. What, what is that picture and what do we see? Yeah, the Southern Pacific, you know, the words are right there on the billboard. So this is a photograph that Lang made of two men walking along a road that recedes into the infinite distance that's only blocked by one of the figures. And as they're walking along the road, carrying probably everything they own on their backs, to the right of them, 
there's a billboard, a Southern Pacific billboard that says, next time, try the train, relax. And it shows a businessman smartly reclining in a very comfortable Southern Pacific train seat. And surely, you know, there's no doubt that the irony of these two figures walking along a road that they would be pictured next to this billboard suggesting a mode of transportation so completely beyond their reach. It's another great example of the ways in which Lang, even in a single picture, brings words and pictures together. And yeah, it's a it's an incredibly strong statement against the deafness of the advertisement to the situation that was happening in the country at that time. And in 1937, any Californian would have known probably lots of non-Californians, that the Southern Pacific and small farmers had been at loggerheads and were pretty much enemies um, and had been for decades. Right. So the, the, the people for whom these two men would have worked, you know, it's just, uh, yes. Or, or, or were themselves hoping to be or planning to be or had moved west to be. <laughs> it's wondering, yeah, it's an interesting question of what they seem, you know, their shoulders are turned down, they're they're looking down in front of them. It's hard to imagine what they saw as their possibility, but I suspect it didn't have much to do with that billboard. Yeah, Lang, you know, I, I think one of the things that's probably under-discussed in the literature on Lang, and there's lots of room for lots of people to do lots more work on Lang, is her knowledge of the history of, of the West and the regions in which she's working and her, her knowledge of art and its history, particularly the art history of, of, of the American West. We've been talking mostly about 30s and 40s work, and I don't want to suggest that that's, you know, that the show is just depression work. The show includes work Lang made um, during World War II and especially thereafter. Lang is so often considered within the context of the Depression and then internment. How does she engage with and respond to the boom that was post-World War II California? Well, I think she was ill for a while, and I think that explains some, there's sort of a, a pause in the exhibition after World War II until the early 50s. So I think she was in, you know, working around in California during World War II, especially in Richmond in that area, looking at the way in which the war industry was transforming society. And she and Ansel Adams actually did a story for Fortune magazine that brought together several of those pictures. I would argue perhaps not the strongest pictures in that article, but as a body of work, I think her Richmond photographs are extraordinary and less looked at. And Richmond is where the shipyards that built the naval ships that fought the war in the Pacific were, uh, and where Clifford Still, for example, worked as a steel inspector. Oh, really? But I, but you're also right that the the exhibition is committed to showing work from later chapters of her career as well, because she made a lot of interesting photographs in the 1950s. And with the impact that the 30s and early 40s work had, that is more likely to get overlooked. And this includes two photo stories for Life magazine that she did that will have a whole wall in the exhibition. It also includes a wall about later photographs of hers that were included in The Family of Man in 1955 at MoMA. And perhaps my favorite kind of undersung 
chapter of her later career were photographs that she made between 1955 and 1957 of California's pioneering public defender system. And this is one of those bodies of work that never got the attention it deserved in her lifetime. To think that she worked on it for two years and the only two publications of it were a little pamphlet and a story in the Manila Chronicle in the Philippines, that was clearly not the intent or audience. The Oakland Museum has mock-ups from Life magazine of what that would have looked like as a Life photo story, but that never happened. And, you know, little known fact, actually, Gordon Parks made a photo story for Life magazine as part of a series on crime that they did in 1957. Well, it was a series on crime. Gordon Parks' series was called The Atmosphere of Crime. But in one of the subsequent articles in the series, the editors talk about the desire to find someone, a visual counterpoint between the prosecutor and the public defender, because they think there's a great story there between somebody who's looking to put someone in jail and someone who's looking to keep them out of jail. And they go so far as to name Frank Coakley, who was the prosecutor in Alameda County, California. And I believe at that point, in fact, coincidentally, Lang was photographing the public defender in Alameda County, California. Um, and his name was Martin Pulick. And Lang's photographs would have been the perfect counterpoint to any photographs of Frank Coakley, but they, they never happened. And the only time that this series of photographs really got any serious attention was after her death in 1969, when they were included in a book that the National Lawyers Guild published called Minimizing Racism in Jury Trials. And this was published after the Huey P. Newton's Black Panther trial. And it's an extraordinary book about identifying and trying to prevent racism in jury selection. And it's illustrated exclusively with Lang's photographs. And so although she didn't live to see that, I am quite confident she would have been really happy to have seen the work put to that use and, you know, perhaps also distressed to see the ways in which it didn't solve the problem. These pictures you're talking about that Lang took in Alameda County uh, are pictures she made in 1957. And MoMA acquired many of them in 1959, which seems strikingly early or strikingly quickly. Any idea why? Lang was really close with John Tcherkovsky and with the director of the Department of Photography and Edward Steichen, his predecessor. And, you know, she was included in exhibitions at MoMA beginning with the inaugural exhibit of the Department of Photography in 1940. So she was in regular contact with curators at MoMA from the very start, from across her career. So it doesn't surprise me that as she completed a powerful body of work, she would show it to Steichen and then later to Tchaikovsky, and that that work would then find its way into MoMA exhibitions and into the collection. I don't know the specific circumstances of the 1959 acquisition, but what's amazing is that this exhibition that we're doing now is drawn exclusively from photographs that came into the collection between 
the late 1930s, some of the gifts of the Farm Security Administration, and the mid-1960s at the time of her retrospective here. And, you know, the hundreds of photographs that we were able to draw from and distill into this exhibition all came into the museum essentially at those times. So it seems to me, and I could absolutely be wrong about this, that Lang's late 40s and and really 50s pictures have a different address of portrait subjects or human subjects than than the Depression-era work. In the Depression-era work, she's quite often pointedly looking up at, at humans, especially humans in a position of disadvantage or struggle. And in the 1950s, her point of view changes. She's looking directly at people, level with them. Is that something you've noticed? Did that happen? Am I making that up? <laughs> well, it's a good question. You know, I I think you're absolutely right that the heroicizing impulse by, you know, take, putting your camera low and having someone with the sky as their background. So you kind of remove all other context and you, you know, that, that is an absolute hallmark of her work from the thirties. You can think of examples that don't conform to that, but I like what you're saying in terms of how in the later work, she frequently invites in contextual complexities. And so, so there's a photograph made in Richmond in about 1943, where it's an African-American woman, clearly a shipyard worker from Richmond, but where Lang in photographing her from below, her, you know, giving her this heroic treatment, she's also included a billboard or sign behind her that says, from what you can read, serve you. And so this points to, I think, a tendency as Lang's confidence continues to develop in how she can kind of harness backgrounds and contexts in dialogue with her subjects. And I think that does happen more and more throughout her career. You know, at the same time, her attention to the human face, now I'm thinking of some of the photographs that she made when she was traveling around the world with Paul Taylor in the late 50s and early 60s. And she she did sometimes also return to that low camera silhouetting someone against the sky. So I would say you can point to examples of where her pictorial strategies become more nuanced. I think um, Sam Contest, one of the things that she's pointed out to me is the way in which Lang continues to look closer and to use that isolated detail as a strategy as she, you know, later in her career with her late work. But she's somebody who... I think the work is united by a natural sense of empathy more than a particular strategy of how the image was going to come together. And it's one of the things that makes her career such an interesting one to trace. It's like you often know that it's a Lang photograph, even if the way in which she brought it together might not have much in common with the pictures made before or after. And of course, she was long experienced in, in making portraits and photographing people. She starts out in San Francisco as a portraitist, as a society portraitist, as an upper middle class portraitist, you know, from ma- making studio portraits. 
So I want to close by mentioning that the show includes a number of examples of pictures Lang made of uh, of the landscape. We don't typically think of Lang as a landscape photographer, but but she was. She made kind of, no doubt, Ansel Adams and possibly, say, Albert Bierstadt informed pictures of the trunks and limbs of uh, California's majestic black oaks. And she made a series of pictures in the mid-1950s with, with Perkle Jones of the Berryessa Valley in, in, in California. For my, for my money, it's probably the most underrated thing she did and is one of the most underrated photographic series of the American 20th century. And I think it's a really good example of how her work changes between the 30s and the 50s, but how she remains true to a core set of philosophical and political principles. What are those pictures? And maybe you could tell us about one or two of them that's that's in the show. Sure. It's a really powerful body of work, the pictures that she and Perkle Jones made in Berryessa. And it was published in Aperture magazine in 1960 as Death of a Valley, which was several years after she completed the series. But I think she was having trouble getting broader interest, for instance, from Life magazine in publishing something that was such a, a tribute to the land, as you said. Her attentiveness to the human condition extended beyond simply photographs of people, and it absolutely included pictures of the land. I'm thinking, for instance, of an early photograph she made called Tractored Out, where you see it's a human feeling picture, but it's the impact of human beings on the land that you can't escape. And the land's impact on human beings. That's a, that's a June 1938 picture. We'll have, we'll have it on manpodcast.com too. Sorry. But in Death of a Valley, where this entire valley and the way of life and the people and the animals and everything that happens there is going to come to an end because they're building a dam and they're planning on flooding the whole thing. And I think this is one of the ways in which she's just a true, true Californian. You know, in other words, she's paying attention to these issues of the environmental impact and the water crisis and you know, this is in 1957 she's doing this. So in my mind, the book the, that's published in Aperture magazine is so important that we're making a facsimile of it so that people can hold it and read it in the exhibition. Because while I do think she made a number of extraordinary photographs for it, it's another example of combining words and pictures that is so thoughtful and we it's why in the catalog we reproduced two spreads for it but i think that it's such a modest little magazine but it, it carries such an impact and unfortunately i agree with you it's been overlooked in many of the stories that are told it's also a great example of lang's under examined under considered role as a peer and a colleague to other photographers perkle jones not enormously remembered now, sadly. The Jones Archive, I think, is, you know, in a slightly out-of-the-way place, University of California, Santa Cruz. Nice place to visit. Nice place to visit if you can get there. It's a couple hours from the nearest airport, right? But, you know, Lang, Lang was a, an advocate colleague and peer to, to say, Perkle Jones or to, to Homer Page. And so I think it's it's really neat to see a 
physical representation of that because that was really important to her in, in the show. It's kind of an extension of her engagement with writers from earlier on in her career, the way she engages with other photographers as she gets older. Sarah Meister, thanks very much. Oh, Tyler, thank you so much. What a thrill. The internationally acclaimed exhibition Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, is making its final West Coast stop in San Francisco. On view now at the DeYoung Museum, Soul of a Nation celebrates the art made by black artists during two pivotal decades when issues of race and identity dominated public consciousness. Visitors to the DeYoung Museum's presentation will discover the Bay Area's own unique connection to the art and artists of the black power era. Don't miss... Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power's final West Coast stop. Reserve your tickets today at deyoungmuseum.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Norman Rockwell, American Freedom, the first comprehensive exhibition devoted to Norman Rockwell's iconic depictions of the four freedoms outlined by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. The presentation explores how Rockwell's 1943 paintings came to be embraced by millions of Americans, providing crucial aid to the war effort and taking their place among the most indelible images in the history of American art. Visit mfah.org slash Norman Rockwell for more. Welcome back. Next up, Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco curator Lauren Palmer. She joins me to discuss additions she and other fine arts museums curators made to Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, 1963 to 1983. The exhibition, which is at the De Young through March 15th, examines art made during two decades during which black political and cultural power ascended in the United States. Soul of a Nation originated at the Tate Modern in 2017 and was curated by Mark Godfrey and Zoe Whitley. Lauren Palmer, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to talk about the show. How did the idea of adding the Bay Area to Soul of a Nation come about? We at the DeYoung Museum were thrilled when Soul of a Nation was top of mind when Tom Campbell came on as our new director. And this was his first project that he really campaigned for. And we benefited. But part of that great excitement was coupled with a bit of nervousness being a surprise fifth venue. So we knew from the outset that the show was going to have to take on a very different shape than the way that it formed in in London or Bentonville, Brooklyn, or Los Angeles. So from the outset, we knew we would deal with things falling out, but we viewed those gaps as an opportunity. Uh, We know that the Bay Area has this incredibly rich history of, of artists working in tandem with these ideas of the black power movement and civil rights. And it was apparent to us just how many of our local heroes were absent from the show as it was initially conceived. Emory Douglas was perhaps the most recognizable Bay Area artist in the original iteration of the exhibition. But we had a lot of local figures we wanted to add, like uh, Richard Mayhew, a beloved local hero. His work, Rhapsody, in our permanent collection is a favorite work in the museum, favorite of many visitors. And we knew Richard Mayhew, for instance, was a founding member of Spiral, but he was not included in the Spiral Gallery in any of the previous 
iterations of the show. So from the outset, we already we already knew that there were gaps we had to fill, and we were excited to do so. Even just from a history point of view, to have this show, which which goes from sixty three to eighty three, without much from the Bay Area, the home of the Black Panther Party, was something I remember noticing in in, in Brooklyn, for example. So let's talk about what was happening here, here being the Bay Area in 63-83, arts-wise. In Chicago in this period, you had a group of artists who, who got together and, and as Afro-Cobra, a group that's been um, celebrated and examined in a number of exhibitions lately. Was there anything like that, any, any type of cooperative group or, or group of artists working together in the Bay Area at the time, or was there not? And maybe that's why some Bay Area figures got got missed in the first version of the show checklist, if, if you will. As far as we could immediately discern, we in the Bay Area don't have one singular group that we could look to, such as Obasi or Afrocobra in Chicago. So we had to be a little bit more creative and find where was a galvanizing point in the story of Black art in the Bay Area. And we decided to really set our sights on the legacy of a place called Rainbow Sign, which was a community center founded in Berkeley in 1971 by a charismatic empresario named Mary Ann Poller. And uh, she was assisted in her efforts by a curator named E.J. Montgomery. And from 1971 to 1977, Poller and Montgomery brought through the most incredible roster of poets and dancers and painters and printmakers and sculptors they believed that the best way to inspire the next generation would be to give them heroes to look up to and bring them into contact with figures like James Baldwin and Maya Angelou. And they brought in Nina Simone, and they declared Nina Simone Day in Berkeley on the occasion. Odetta sang there. And E.J. Montgomery had a really ambitious exhibition program. They mounted a show of Afrocobra prints that Gerald Williams sent over, I think, a bundle of about 30 works that were mounted in Berkeley. They gave a show to Elizabeth Catlett. So Black Unity, which was always a part of this incredible exhibition at all the other venues, we show it here with the added dimension of having been exhibited in Berkeley in the Elizabeth Catlett show. We were also delighted to recontextualize Betty Sarr's legendary work of the liberation of Aunt Jemima which, again, another work that has traveled with Soul of a Nation from venue to venue, but took on a really different dimension in our presentation because we tell the story of how it was made for a 1972 exhibition at Rainbow Sign. Uh, E.J. Montgomery was curating an exhibition on the theme of Black heroes, and Betty Saar decided to take a figure like Aunt Jemima and empower her and make her a revolutionary and make her a Black hero. We know also that she collected parts of aspects of the sculpture were originally found at a flea market in Alameda. And uh, being able to bring that local story to a nationally and internationally significant artwork was really meaningful for us. So without, without a group to look point to, like Spiral or Afrocobra, being able to at least center a Bay Area story around Rainbow Sign and its visionary leadership gave us a compass. The other noteworthy thing about Betty Sarr's liberation is that it lives in the Bay Area. It's in the collection of the Berkeley Art Museum, 
Berkeley Art Museum, of course, having been closed for a number of years as it had to leave its earthquake at risk building, its unseismically reinforced building, got a new space and, and, and so on and so forth. The new space does not have permanent permanent collection galleries. And so it's a work that is, yeah, closely tied to the Bay Area for lots of reasons. And it's really one of the most important works of, of post-war art, full stop. But it's not regularly on view in the Bay Area. Yeah, and it's not really discussed in terms of its Bay Area connection. Being made for a Bay Area show with materials from a Bay Area flea market, which also brings in a whole other dimension of you look at the derogatory, abhorrent, racist imagery in that piece, and we have these illusions Living in San Francisco, Berkeley, we live in these really liberal places, but somehow some of those materials may have ended up in a place as liberal as the Bay Area. And, and, and thinking about those material objects and the pathways through which racist imagery might travel also adds a very different dimension to the work, especially for a Bay Area viewer. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see going forward what impact this show and the reception to it, and particularly the reception to that SAR, has on Berkeley's decision-making going forward. Yeah, we're excited to see the afterlife of some of these objects, especially, I mean, liberation of Aunt Jemima is a modern icon. Angela Davis said the Black women's movement started with liberation of Aunt Jemima. But we are also really excited by the fact that we were able to kind of mine the archive and go into storage or inspire our peers to go into storage and see what's been hiding for decades. I'm on the edge of my seat to see how has this show opened up new afterlives for objects that have been languishing in storage. A, a really good example of that is The Hero by Philip Lindsay Mason, which is, it's, I, I think it's an icon of the, specifically an icon of the De Young presentation. The Hero was given by the artist to Mills College, and I don't believe it was ever exhibited. So for decades, this incredible painting of this black superhero, decades before Black Panther shook the globe, it had been in storage. But now it's been elevated to this instant Bay Area icon. So it'll be exciting to see what happens next. I don't think it could languish for much longer. I couldn't go back to storage in the way it was living before. So backing up just a step, who is Philip Lindsay Mason? Philip Lindsay Mason is a Bay Area painter. Well, he, he no longer lives in the Bay Area, but in the 1960s, he was living and working in Berkeley, California. And we were able to add three works by Mason to the show. So of all of the Bay Area artists who are represented anew in the San Francisco iteration, uh, he he takes a, a lot, three spots on that esteemed list. He's represented by three works, Manchild in the Promised Land, Maiden Voyage, and The Hero. And, and they are all very different expressions of what figurative painting can accomplish in support of the aims of, of black power and the pursuit of justice and equality. Manchild in the Promised Land was an incredible discovery for us. It's in the collection at Indiana State University, which has a very deep bench of works by African-American artists. He was living and working in Berkeley in the 60s, and he painted this image of a young boy seated on a stoop looking up, and the viewer kind of hovers over this figure who has a red target painted on his chest. Above him is an advertisement for Pepsi, this kind of promise of sweetness 
contrasting with the reality of his life. And when I first saw that image, the work brought to mind the story of Trayvon Martin. When I saw it, I was really surprised to see the date of 1968. But there's a reminder there. Selma Golden famously declared at the symposium for the Broad opening that I have good news and I have bad news. This exhibition has never been more relevant. And uh, Mason's Manchild in the Promised Land, with its suggestions of, of a looming threat or looming brutality towards this innocent child, that really hammers that home. Mason is also represented by the hero, which I spoke about earlier, and another painting called Maiden Voyage, which we believe may refer to Mary Ann Poller, the founder of Rainbow Sign. It's a really lyrical painting of a, of a woman, perhaps a young activist, holding a green candle, and she kind of rides on this wave of a rainbow, like the rainbow sign, which the the center, which took its name from um, the fire next time, James Baldwin, who quoted, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, but the fire next time. And it's a sense of hope. And it's a, it's a very interesting juxtaposition to the implied threat of violence and brutality and man-child, but also the excitement and the uplift and the promise of this superhero who's in the same gallery rushing to the rescue whose waist is encircled by this chains of bondage. And he's rushing to save someone and liberate others and, and promise freedom. Yeah, uh, Mason is a very interesting figure, and we're, we're glad that he's in the show. Unfortunately, he's, he's not very well known. And as art historians, it was difficult for us to, to learn very much about the context in which he made these works. Who is Marie Johnson Calloway? And how is she represented in the show? So the school crossing guard is in our Black Heroes Gallery. And I have to mention that it is juxtaposed with Philip Lizzie Mason's hero. And next to the superhero, you have a three-dimensional piece, almost at eye level, of a school crossing guard. Wall-mounted and life-size, and she wears an orange safety vest, she wears tube socks, she's got a little hat, all made of repurposed fabrics and clothing. Interestingly, Calloway was great friends with Betty Sarr, and they would go to flea markets together where Betty Sarr was, you know, finding these small, interesting pieces she could repurpose and looking for, you know, stereotypes that she could kind of challenge and empower. And at the same time that Calloway was buying huge things, desks, windows, doorways. So um, I'd love to look at that piece and remember that friendship and that collaboration. Children particularly react to seeing this life-size, three-dimensional school crossing guard. And she's in the Black Heroes Gallery, of course, as an image of an everyday hero, a familiar hero, a really nice contrast with the fictional hero of a superhero rushing to the rescue. So Callaway is a really beloved figure in the Bay Area. She was a leader in the San Jose NAACP, and she taught art in San Jose for many years and curated some exhibitions, including an exhibition of black art at the San Jose Museum of Art. She was really ahead of her time. She began painting abstractly very early in her career. She was working in abstraction, but after joining a march with Martin Luther King in the mid-60s, she totally switched gears and devoted herself to this very 
clear, coherent, representational mode. She's left behind an incredible legacy. Unfortunately, she passed away uh, just a couple of years ago, so she wasn't able to see her inclusion in this exhibition. But during opening weekend, I couldn't count the number of people who approached me and shared their memories of their art teacher, Mary, Marie Johnson Calloway, and sharing reflections on how much she changed, changed their lives or, or affected them. So that was another instance of adding Bay Area artists and reaping so many benefits of people opening up and, and, and sharing their own, their own memories. Absolutely a representational piece, but it also contains within it lots of engagements with abstract art history and particularly 70s black abstraction. She's wearing a short sleeve plaid shirt that reads as a reference to quilts and the way she handles particularly the safety vest and the dress of the crossing guard refer to colors that we see a lot in black abstraction of the 1970s. I mean, uh, the de Young's own, the Fine Arts, zone, Fine Arts Museum's own, Frank Bowling, not far away. And of course, anytime I see stripes in the 70s in, in an artwork, I think of stripe painting. It's a really, it's a really great piece. It's a great piece. It, it seems very simple at first. It's a life-size school crossing guard. But then you think about this is work being made by a woman who was president of the San Jose NAACP. There are definitely deeper meanings and deeper interpretations about what this everyday figure actually means. What is the deeper significance of a person in the community who makes sure that all the kids can get to school safely and get an education and, and just be a part of a world of promise. And, you know, she's a small part of ensuring that kids have a future. You you think of her. She's an she was an absolutely an artist, but she was also an activist and a leader, a thought leader in civil rights in San Jose. So there's there are all these untapped dimensions of that work. Speaking of works with layers, Ben Hazard's Medal of Honor from from 1967. It's a piece that references both a military award and the way. Black people in America were targeted by, by especially by by the authorities. What what is that piece, and kind of what is that layering that that activates it in the middle of it? Ben Hazard's Medal of Honor, made around 1967, is another addition to the De Young presentation. There are, there's actually a pattern with some of these Bay Area artists that they were leaders of organizations or leaders within institutions in a way that supported and ran in tandem with an art practice. Ben Hazard was, for 10 years, Director of Community Outreach at the Oakland Museum of California. Let me jump in for a quick moment to, to tell people who don't know the Oakland Museum. It's, it's a history museum. It's an art museum, kind of all in, all in one in a, in, a, in a fantastic Kevin Roach building in, in Oakland. So it's, a, it's, a, it's the rare museum with, with feet in both kind of the past and present in art and, and the past in history. And it's, it's kind of an old fashioned place that still exists and is still active and, and still has a fine collection of art. Well, you, you say it's an old fashioned place, but they were actually decades ahead of their time in recognizing for one, they're in an area where the community was generally underserved by arts institutions. And Ben Hazard was appointed the director of community outreach. So in, the 1970s, Ben Hazard, in tandem with his art practice, was in a role where he was tasked with seeing how the museum was 
serving its community and how it was failing. I think there are museums today in the, the year 2020 that are still trying to advocate for the creation of such positions, as we now have a better understanding of how, how important it is to have people within the staff who see how we are and are not supporting diversity outside the museum and in the worlds around each institution. So that's an interesting context for his art, especially a piece like Medal of Honor, which is a shaped canvas. And the title and the shape of the work refer to the Medal of Honor, the highest U.S. military decoration. Hazard's version of this Medal of Honor kind of challenges what is honor and who deserves to be recognized for their service. It was painted shortly after the Hunter's Point Uprising or Hunter's Point Rebellion, which began on September 27, 1966. And it's a very familiar story. Again, a familiar story in the year 2020. These works have never been more relevant when there was few days of violence and, and rebellion and fighting back after a teenager was killed by police from after he was fleeing the scene of a stolen car. And the neighborhood of Hunter's Point was, it, it lit up with energy and reaction. Hunter's Point is in, Hunter's Point is at the southern end of San Francisco. It, it is. And we see this Medal of Honor. And although there, it's not as, there is not a specific reference to the Hunter's Point events of uh, the end of September in 1966, we can't help but make that association with a Bay Area artist and the, the imagery featured in the Medal of Honor. The center takes the traditional form on the medal, which was the Statue of Liberty, and replaces it with a young black man who's holding a torch or a Molotov cocktail. And is he being... Is he the winning the award or is the person being given the award receiving something that celebrates, commemorates this figure who carries a flame that's either a beacon or a weapon? Is he fighting? Is he defending himself? It's ambiguous, but it's provocative. And it's another work that I believe had been in storage for many years. And we were really happy to incorporate it into our presentation of the exhibition and It'll be interesting to see how it lives on after the show. We, I, I, I should note that that hazard is in the collection of the Oakland Museum, so it, it, it lives locally. The last artist and last edition um, I wanted to, to, to bring up is there is a great photograph of uh, a portrait of Kathleen Cleaver in the show by, by, by Perkle Jones. How did Perkle Jones end up at a Panther rally? That's a very interesting story, and I would... <laughs> I would love to begin the story by actually foregrounding Perkle Jones' wife, Ruth Marion Baruch, who was also a photographer. In the beginning of 1968, Ruth Marion Baruch was coming off of a successful exhibition at the De Young Museum. It was an exhibition of photographs she had taken of the Summer of Love and Hippies on Hate Street. Really popular, pleasant exhibition of what was going on in San Francisco in that moment. She was very prescient and very passionate person who decided to leverage the capital, the social capital, cultural capital that she had gained during that exhibition. And she went to the director of the museum, who was then Jack McGregor, director of the Young Museum in 1968. And she said, listen, there's something really exciting going on in Oakland. There's this group called the Black Panthers. They are doing really important things. They're having 
urgent, relevant conversations, and I need to photograph them. And I want to have an exhibition here at the museum, and it has to happen as soon as possible. So she, she presented this very passionate proposal to the director, and he, he gave her the go-ahead to take some test shots and see what happened. So Ruth Marion Baruch began photographing the Panthers in the late spring, early summer of 1968, but you could only accomplish so much without their buy-in. So she shared a few images with Kathleen Cleaver, as well as Jack McGregor, and both were really interested in what she was doing and the angle she was taking. And so she got the green light to to proceed. Uh, Famously, when Aldrich Cleaver saw the photographs, he said something along the lines of, finally, you're showing us as we want to be seen. She was not showing the Black Panthers purely through the same lens that the media had been using. You know, there are a lot of images of them holding weapons or or acting in intimidating or aggressive manners. Ruth Marion Baruch was taking photographs of Black Panthers feeding their children or children breaking bread or people selling copies of the Black Panther newspaper, just living their lives in service of this greater moment. Over the course of the summer of 1968, Perkle Jones joined his wife in, in this project, this really ambitious project. And they were given the go-ahead by Black Panther leadership to be present at their rallies, to come to their meetings. And it led to the creation of a really exciting document of what was happening in Oakland that summer, which turned out to be a very key moment in the story of the Black Panther Party. They had a private audience with Huey Newton in his in a prison that was organized by Newton's lawyer. It would turn out to be, I believe, the last private audience he would have been able to have with them. It was a really energetic moment. But as they kept photographing what was going on in live time, I think the leadership of the museum began to they began to hesitate. There was pushback and there was doubt and concern about is it is it appropriate for the museum to be showing this work? Ruth Marion Baruch, Perkle Jones, they fought hard. They brought local government leadership on board to support their project. After a lot of fighting, the show opened in December 1968. It was called A Photographic Essay on the Black Panthers, and 100,000 people came, making it the most popular exhibition in the museum's history until King Tut. So while we couldn't recreate the entire exhibition, we were able to include that photograph of Kathleen Cleaver, and that was the original print that was shown at the De Young Museum in 1968. And then as you enter or exit the exhibition, you can also walk down a hall where we, where we have recreated kind of a, a display of many other key images from this much larger photo series. And then as you continue down our hallway, we have these large-scale prints of visitors at the De Young Museum looking at the exhibition in 1968, and you see this diversity in our galleries that I don't know if there had ever been before or since. We we have the actual object, we have images of other works from the series, and we have images of people looking at the exhibition and reacting in real time in, in 1968. Being able to resurrect this really inspiring moment in the museum's history that was very meaningful for me as, as a curator here at the Down Museum to 
recognize that there's been a long line of people here at the Fine Arts Museums, at the now Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, who've always tried to integrate this perspective into what we do. That was very inspiring. Lauren Palmer, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.